Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life's defining moments don't always feel that great when they are happening. In the moment, they can feel challenging, uncomfortable, difficult, impossible even. But with hindsight, they can take on a different shape. Each week, I ask my guests to share their biggest life learnings to date as we explore those difficult, swampy, infuriating times and how they shaped them, all from a comfortable distance that's afforded them the time to take the positive out of what might have seemed nothing but negative at the time. Because whether it's risks, excuses, obstacles, opportunities, both missed and taken, successes, regrets, curveballs, weaknesses, strengths, and perhaps the hardest lesson of all, being wrong, they are the reason they are the person they are today. The person sitting in front of me on this episode of The Emma Gunn Show. Rosie Green is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author who has enjoyed an incredible career writing for glossy magazines, newspapers, and is now also a regular contributor to the UK's primetime daily TV show This Morning. Her writing credits include all the best-selling publications you can think of, Vogue, The Times, The Telegraph, Elle, Red, and Now You magazine, the Sunday supplement from The Daily Mail, or The Mail on Sunday. For years, Rosie's column in Red Magazine, Life's Rosie, charted her life as a mum of two and her marriage to her childhood sweetheart. It was a no-holds-barred look at life as a working mum, and it was, for the duration of her tenure as a columnist at the magazine, one of the most, if not the most, read page in the book. To say everything changed when her husband not only announced he was having a relationship with someone else, but that he was leaving the life they had created together with no intention of looking back is an understatement. One can only imagine the mental and emotional turmoil that ensued. Dark times though they were, there is no one like Rosie Green. She has been my friend for 20 years, a senior beauty director at Elle magazine when I was a young and very wet behind the ears beauty writer. Rosie was always the smiling, warm and welcoming face at any event I went to who made me feel part of the group, even before I'd really earned my stripes. It is no surprise then that once she clawed herself out of the darkness, came to terms with her new reality and began to rebuild her life, she came armed with so much love and brightness, not just for herself, but for anyone else who needed light when they found themselves plunged into darkness by infidelity or betrayal. That light became her best-selling book, How to Heal a Broken Heart, from rock bottom to reinvention via ugly crying on the bathroom floor. Broadcaster Vanessa Feltz described it as one of the few books I found that really describes what a broken heart feels like. And if you read the hundreds of reviews on Amazon, the recurrent theme is how it has served as a lifeline to those who have found themselves in the same situation as Rosie. As the author Marion Keyes described it, How to Heal a Broken Heart is your best friend, honest, comforting and hopeful. I'm sure if we could go back in time and find Rosie on that day her husband left and told her that in 2023 she'd have written a book that had sold tens of thousands of copies, she would be the relationship guru on this morning with a daily audience of one million viewers and would have a weekly column in New Magazine which enjoys a circulation of over one and a half million readers and that she had just returned from a holiday with her boyfriend, I'd hazard a guess that she may not have thought it was possible. But it is, 
It was. And now she is going to tell us exactly what happened on that journey. Welcome back to the podcast, Rosie Green. Thank you very much, Emma. I think I'm going to frame that intro. <laughs> that was very amazing. Thank you. How about your ringtone, if you like? Oh, yes. <laughs> we have a long ringtone. Who answers the phone anymore? Um, we are going to start this conversation with your biggest risk. And given the introduction I've just read, the fact that the biggest risk is actually talking about the breakdown of your marriage, that was a risk that paid off, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think, you know, we are conditioned um, by society, I think, to if, if kind of bad things bad things in inverted commas happen so you know if you have a miscarriage or if you your husband leaves you as mine did or you know I think you know we're we're taught to sort of that classic Kate Moss thing of never complain never explain you know and actually is that a Kate Moss thing yes it is um and I guess it's probably not totally correct in that context but I just really felt a pressure to deal with it myself by exposing the fact that I've been left I you know, it was a sort of ego damaging thing. You kind of look like damaged goods in a sense. Also by writing about it, do you look kind of tragic? Do you look desperate? Do you look like you're bitter and twisted? You know, is the best thing to do to put out the joint press release, not that we we're at that stage, but in a kind of, you know, in 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 a sort of sense to, to people that you know, saying, oh, we just, you know, mutually decided to split up. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought I can't do that I cannot do that I can't say those things to my friends because it felt disingenuous and then I felt that I couldn't write those things you know I had to write the truth but as as I wrote that piece for Red I you know I felt physically sick clicking the button sending it to them and then I felt physically sick and was shaking on the day that it came out because I feared the backlash from my ex I feared judgment I feared so many things. It felt, and, and even like my career, I just thought, oh, you know, I've, you know, wanted to be this person that was to was together and was successful and all those things. And actually here I am, you know, somebody that's been left. What does that say about me? You know, but I just felt I had to do it. Did you feel as well truth was your only option given the circumstances? You couldn't really do the conscious uncoupling <laughs> announcement because you were both so drastically on different pages. Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't have had anything to say publicly about it. So I I probably could have swung that, actually. I could have absolutely swung that. And I probably could have told, you know, beyond my ver a very small social circle, I could have put that out, you know, that that's, that that's what happened. So actually, no, it was a conscious choice to say it as it was, you know. And actually, I'm very grateful to the people that I talked to, including you and including, um, you know, that first piece for Red and then the subsequent pieces, that actually I very much felt, even though I was writing for national magazines and for doing podcasts and things that had, you know, reach, everyone kind of looked after me in that sense because it was so raw. It was like, okay, this is what you can say and this is what you can't say because also there are sort of legal complications to what you can mm -hmm. say, you know. I don't know if this is as much of a risk, but as well, the fact that how long did you have the Lives Rosies column? That was 10 years. So 10 years yeah. talking about life as a mum, life as a wife. Yeah. And he was very much a feature of that. And it was stable and secure. And it was it, it was so lighthearted. It was so real. Everyone I ever speak to says when they talk about Red Magazine, that was the page that they would find first. Oh, thank you. That means a great deal to me. And and it was so true. You know, it was that I was writing it. And what I sort of realise now, slightly looking back on it, is that I think 
I was very much layering my own self onto it, you know. So, I, you know, that was that was very much him. But, you know, I think I was kind of giving it a, a rosy green sheen, if you know what I mean. But, I, you know, I think I felt that that's what it, it was, you know. And then so that is the stuff that confused me and still confuses me to this day of, you know, wondering how much of that was manufactured in my mind and how much of it was real. And I think the answer is a bit both, probably. Mm. Did you think for 10 years to be talking about this marriage and this family as stable to suddenly say, oh, it, it just blew up. Yeah. Was that the biggest part? Was that the biggest risk in a way? Other people's opinion or, or, or just saying this perfect rosy green sheen life. Actually, it's not there anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that was one of the most major risks. Uh, but I think the biggest one to me was actually more internal was that I felt um, and, and, you know, I've done a lot of looking at why that actually I could cope with anything in my life as long as I had that primary romantic mm. attachment. I think, you know, I, you know, for various reasons, we could be here all day, but, you know, sort of early divorce of my parents, you know, kind of just very much wanted that stable family unit and literally the roses around the door, which is what I had. And I just thought I, you know, I would crumble and die if that wasn't there, which I pretty much did. But then came back, you know. So actually, for me, it was that feeling of aloneness and feeling of uncertainty and just wondering if I could ever be be that person, the person that I was, the beauty editor, the writer, all those things, if I didn't have that support behind me. Mm. And when the magazine came out, or when you, you said you were incredibly nervous about sending the piece in the first place, and then when the magazine came out, can you talk to me about those two days, like what came back from the editor the commissioning editor, and then what it was like when it was just out in the world. So I wrote it on an aeroplane. I wrote the piece on an aeroplane. I was taking the kids out to see a, a friend of ours and um, abroad. And it was the first time we'd been abroad as a family without my ex, obviously, and the kids were in absolute bits. So I had them either side to be on, this, on the aeroplane. And I just... I felt a rawness writing it that I hadn't felt since I was in my early 20s when, you know, I I knew when I was writing it that it felt powerful to me and I, I thought it would feel powerful to other people beyond the shock value. And so actually I, I kind of knew that I had this kind of sort of bomb that was sort of uh, on one hand sort of exciting and felt like a good work and then on the other hand felt incredibly exposing mm. but I think that's what good writing is probably isn't it it's incredibly exposing so I I sent it off and um, I also sent it to a few of my sort of you know I sent it to my cousin I sent it to my best friend and 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 then you know within a few hours they'd all got back to me and, and said you know that they were in tears and that they were moved by it which you know again, felt like some kind of validation because I was like, well, okay, if, I, if I'm not a great wife, can I at least still be a great writer, you know? And so actually that felt, it felt good. And in that moment, it was quite sort of selfish to kind of get it out there. Mm -hmm. But when it, the day that it came out, I remember just thinking, oh my God, like, you know, what, what is everyone going to think? Is everyone going to think I'm tragic, that I'm a loser? Is everyone going to think that I'm sort of like you know, aired my dirty linen in public are, uh, you know, I I thought about like, my, what's my mother-in-law, my ex-mother-in-law going to think, you know, all these people, what are they going to think? Mm. And, um, and the response was just 
incredible. I was so overwhelmed by it because I think all those people that have been on the Life's Rosy journey were shocked. And actually, I can't remember one of the girls in the office told me that that people were actually going out to buy like, you know, because it was online, but they wanted it in print. You know, it was like, it was, it felt amazing slash, but I was still in this hellhole of, of grief and, mm. you know, I felt so distraught about it all, but it was definitely the start of the journey, I think. You just said then, if I can't be a great wife, maybe I could be a great writer. Yeah. Can I question that? Yeah, 100%. I don't feel I don't feel that now, yeah. but I definitely felt it then. I you know, I think if you're if you're left and also if you're left in a way that is you know, for whatever reasons, I think if you're leaving a relationship, you do say, you know, you didn't do this and you didn't do that and you didn't do this and this didn't make me happy whilst I was sort of scrabbling to be the perfect wife. So I, I think I I felt like I'd failed. I felt like I obviously wasn't a good person or I wasn't kind enough or caring enough or, you know, pretty enough or thin enough or all the things that we think that mm. we should be, you know. It's such a trope, isn't it? I was listening to Vanessa Feltz actually uh, talk about um, her marriage breakdown. Yeah. And it was this trope of the 90s and early 2000s, wasn't it? That there would be, if you got wronged by your husband, then you would go on a diet and you would completely change your image, get yeah. a haircut. And it, because it, it was this idea of like, well, it's superficial. Yes. It's a superficial thing. <laughs> and clearly, no. It's so interesting. I remember Lena Durham, if I said that right? Dunham. Dunham, yeah. Uh, she said that the only time that American Vogue would consider putting her on the cover was post-breakup because she lost all this weight, you know. And I, I mean, I, don't, I think we probably can't unpick that here, <laughs> but it's very interesting, actually, the way kind of looks and body and all that stuff plays into a breakup. Because actually, I just did an Instagram post yesterday about this woman who called into this morning where I sort of am a kind of agony aunt. And she was saying that her, her husband had started being physically different and angrier and all these things. And I was worried to say on air it sounds to me like he's having an affair, whether it be an emotional one or maybe it's just a crush on someone in the office. Maybe it's a full-blown affair, but those those are all the, the mm. tells. And um, I felt that it, I couldn't say that really because to leave her with this sort of bombshell would be horrendous. But one of the tells of someone having an affair is them starting to really think about how they look and how they smell. And, you know, I remember smell was a massive thing for me with my ex. Like he suddenly started, he changed his... He changed his aftershave, you know, which had been the same aftershave for years and years, and he changed it. And I think there were probably two reasons for that. One of that, one of those is that I provided him and gave him that aftershave, and I think maybe he felt that was sort of me kind of controlling his smell in some way, or maybe he wanted a different smell for a different scenario. I don't know, but it's very interesting. Mm. They're really obvious things, but they do happen. The literal smell on the lipstick on the collar and the different smells that they're coming back with, you know, it's. It's bizarre. And they are all things that's what's frustrating is all of these things. When you then find out, you, your brain goes, we've been noticing all of these things. They've yeah. been telling us that this has been happening, but we needed you to say it. Yeah. Because like, would you ever have confronted and said, what is going on? Yeah, I had to. I had, do you know what? I saw someone the other day and they said to me that they remember having a conversation about a month before where I'd said, oh, I'm worried about that. And they were like, no, don't worry about it. I think that's the... You never get that closure, really, because I think in quite a lot of affairs, people will say, well, you know, I went out, we went out drinking, but nothing happened. And then it's a sort of slow eek of the truth. And actually, I think a lot of people never get to the full truth. 
You'll probably never know what the full truth is, you know. And then I think that's the whole thing about a horrible split is that everyone's truth gets grey around the edges. I'm, I feel that like there's stuff that I think happened that I'm not 100% sure did happen. You know, I think it's so heightened mm. and you want to believe certain things so much. Taking the risk to write that feature yeah. and talk about your experience opened up the world to you in a way that you already were incredibly successful. Thank you. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but the world opened up to you, particularly when it comes to your career, I think, looking from the outside in. Yeah. In a massive way. It kind of like jump, not jump started, but it jettisoned you from one very successful position to hugely successful position now. Well, I think both you and I know, having been in beauty, you're kind of, it's a great world to be in, but you're, you know, you're working for your publication. So mm. you're L, you're Vogue, and you, you know, you, you're not um you're not front and center of that you know I, I work for l for years and years and occasionally there might be my picture in there but i mean i'm talking like once in every six months or something mm -hmm. and so i guess that was the nature of magazines i think in magazines it's probably changed now but you're you're more anonymous aren't mm. you and so i think i went from being a beauty person to a sort of um a sort of writer who you know who's writing about themselves and their life and so my face was everywhere i think a bit more but what I think was very interesting was, I think, you know, the the editors and the commissioning editors and all those people, I think I think there was un, undeniably an element they wanted the story. But I think what, what it made me realise was how actually this industry is full of people that have got your back. Mm. And I think a lot of people were like, God, this is shit, you know. And so they were actually helping me, you know. So I felt I felt incredibly supported by the industry, I have to say. Do you think you felt by, supported by women, because it's a predominantly female industry in which we yeah. work, who wanted to buoy you up because God help them if they found themselves in a similar position? I absolutely do. I really do. And I, and I feel, you know, that I... I feel very lucky to have been in that industry and I feel very lucky to have had have the friends that I have. And and yeah, I think it did. It opened up all those doors. Also, it made me realise that sometimes you have to ask for things. And I think, you know, we've been brought up to be so polite and not asking and not pushy and none of those things. But actually to say, you know, can I write this for you or can I, you know can I come on your TV programme? All those things that, you know, we sort of feel are a bit is a bit uncool. It's okay to do them. Yeah. Pressing send on that feature, yeah. taking that risk. How has that changed your relationship with taking risks since then? I think I've got massively different, in, in certain form, places in my life, a massively different relationship with risk. Because I think before I was holding on quite tight, mm. you know, I think, and, and I probably didn't realise that. So there was certain stuff that I didn't do whereas now having done all the you know the research for the book and talking to psychologists and therapists you know now I've realized that the brave thing to do is not to push down your own emotions and play nice and do all those things it's to actually voice the things that upset you or worry you because they might not exist or they might not come to fruition or if they do you have to tackle them head on so I feel much less afraid of rejection I think and I feel much less afraid of being by myself Interesting. Mm. Which is, I guess, is from what you said a minute ago, the antithesis of probably what your factory settings were. Yeah. Which was to be coupled up, to have all of those things. And now it, the opposite feels safer. 
Well, no, I wouldn't say the opposite. I still like being coupled up. <laughs> um, I still like being coupled up. But I, what I have realised is that I can, I can do it. You know, I can run a household. I can earn my own money. I can, you know, I can be that person. And yes, I like a relationship, but I don't, I don't want to need it. I'd like to like it, you know. Mm. Okay. I really enjoy that. I love the fact that risk is has been so defining for you actually yeah it really has and I think actually personally I you know I don't know if it's the same for you but I have I mean I have like pretty much zero filter on some things and then was very kind of uptight about other things Uh, yes (laughs) yes so it's so funny it's like yeah you write about your sex life to one and a half million people but then on the same time you know like I wouldn't I'd still be hesitant to sort of, you know, I'm not one of like a Samantha in Sex and the City going, do that, <laughs> lick there. You know, I just, you know, I just, I, you know, I'm learning all that stuff. Mm. And it doesn't mean that you have to, it's okay to have those boundaries. Yeah. And to figure out who the new version of you is, which is nice. Okay, let's talk about excuses. Okay. Because we are both uh, writers, journalists, if you will. We, you worked on a long lead magazine, so you had monthly deadlines for a long time. Yeah. I've always been on weekly. So perhaps our muscles are slightly different <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in terms of excuses that we make. I'm thinking, I'm using excuse in the context here of actually writing a feature okay. several days after. Yeah. But um, what is an excuse that you, doesn't have to be a bad feature. What <laughs> is an excuse that shows up for you time and time again that you've realized is is actually... It's an excuse because you're a little bit scared. I So I like to think that I'm someone that can kind of take criticism and will listen to feedback. And so I was talking to my daughter this morning and I and I realised that I get a bit kind of uppity about like if anyone really does give me feedback. So I kind of immediately default to like if the kids give me feedback, which quite frankly they do all the time, <laughs> I'll just immediately default to like, do you not know how much I do for you? Blah, blah. So I will always excuse things by how busy I am and how mm-hmm. time poor I am and how much I do for other people, which means that I am half an hour late to someone's birthday party, which is not okay. So I'm learning that actually those excuses are not okay because I've I, it's because I've chosen to cram 15 things in that thing. I wrote a piece for You magazine actually about lateness and the reasons why, you know, the, the ways that you justify it. And they are things like you're too busy or, you know, you think you're too busy. Or the other one was really interesting. It was like almost like a defense mechanism of you're late because it's sort of like an ego thing of like, you mm. know, actually if you're late, then everyone's kind of waiting for you rather than the other way around. You know, very sort of basic stuff, a bit like if you go on a date and someone's late, mm-hmm. it's kind of rude, isn't it? You know, so... That's my biggest excuse is I will always, I will always default to like, poor me, I think. Yeah. Oh my God, I just had a light bulb moment. <laughs> it's the poor me. That's my excuse. Yeah. It's, and the thing is, is you want, then what well, I don't know about you, but then you want the person that you have kept waiting to sort of make you feel better yes, about your exactly. lateness. Oh, you poor thing. You must be so stretched. Single mother. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of doesn't cut it. No, exactly. Interesting. Have you found that um, as somebody who has to deliver content on a deadline, you're now on a weekly, do you ever find that you make excuses for why you're doing it the last minute or you're doing it the morning that you have to submit? Or are you much better than that? No, I mean, I literally have to file a column today and I still, I thought, I'm sure my um, conversation with them will throw stuff up. (laughs) So I think creatively, it's hard, isn't it? Because you have to have some kind of 
moment of enlightenment about what you're going to write. So you mm-hmm. can't, you know, and I do always remember, I remember that when I was at Red, there was a columnist, shall remain nameless, uh, who would file her copy on deadline, like three days, or before, three days before, it was so boring. It was so formulaic, right? And I just thought, actually, I'd rather, I'd rather read something a little bit late. But then I also realised, again, poor me, it's the excuse thing. You've got subs waiting for it. You've got all of that. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to deliver it. So what I do is I get up very, I get, I get up very early in the morning. So I'll, so it's meant to be filed today, and it'll go through my head. And then tomorrow I get up at five o'clock, so it's there at like eight thirty. So, so it's only one day late. So the excuse doesn't actually impact anyone else. The, the... It's still a bit of a day. It's still a bit late, okay. but it's 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 in the parameters I've decided <laughs> are okay. There's an amnesty. Yeah, and exactly. You've got in just I'm in before. the window. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, talk to me about, and this can be from recent years, as we know. Obviously, you've talked a lot about um, what's gone on in your personal life, but talk to me about um, an obstacle that. It's something that you've had to either overcome, bash through, find your way under, over, around. Um, you've said when we spoke about this beforehand that it's um, a fear of abandonment and need for validation that has been an obstacle that you find yourself coming up against a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was definitely my biggest thing. You know, like when I was growing up, I kind of, I, you know, I had a, I had a boyfriend that I got at maybe 15 to 17. And then I was maybe was maybe single from 17 and a half to 18 so I was maybe single for six months and then and then I met my yeah then I met my husband you know so I've just always been in a in a solid committed relationship and so I think that limited me in 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 quite a lot of ways you know I kind of you know I didn't experience new men I didn't experience new you know you know I didn't go off gap year for a year and do all that kind of stuff I was always trying to find this sort of stable world and then I would do I would do fun amazing things from it but we would always be from this base of you know this solid base do you think that made you look at the world through the eyes of what do we think of this as opposed to what do I think of this did you lose yourself a bit do you know I I think I felt that it actually gave me strength in in that way. So I think I I was always like, what do I think of this and what you know? And and actually, I think you know when I look back on the things in my marriage that I, I don't think I did, but I was very dominant in that way. You know, it was like we're going to live here or we're going to drive this. Maybe not the cars, but you know, we're going to have. You know, I think I was quite a dominant personality, and so in a way, that sort of solid base of someone, you know, someone that would never leave me. Mm-hmm. You know, it gave me it, that gave me a strength, but it transpires it was a kind of false strength. Mm. It's interesting you talk about being dominant, where I don't think a man would describe themselves as dominant in that way in the same dynamic. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, actually, what's interesting for me now is having only been with you know been with my ex for such a long amount of time and then and he was quite ironically laid back in some things and then being with someone now who's much more sort of um driven and kind of I guess dynamic in that sense he's always looking for the new opportunity or the new thing to do or the new you know it's quite challenging for me I'm like oh okay you want to go to eat here do you right okay fine you know but it's, it's nice as well because you're not making all the decisions all the time 
That's actually a real relief. I can almost feel the weight lifting. Yeah. You probably didn't realise the weight was even on your shoulders in the first place. No, and it seems sort of a bit a bit sort of awful to say it because, you know, obviously I was also getting things my own way in, in that. But yeah, it is. It's nice to have a sort of, you know, equilibrium in that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Just talking about abandonment and yeah. need for validation. You mentioned that your parents divorced. Yeah. And I wonder... Was there was that the reason why perhaps you wanted to be in the solid relationships? Oh yeah, I mean a hundred percent. My it wasn't a it wasn't an acrimonious divorce, but my dad, um, my mum and dad split up when I was about three, so it was just me and my mum. And my mum is almost in many ways like totally opposite to me. She's tiny little thing, and um, she's very introvert and uh, like deeply caring, um, but sort of. You know, it was just us. It was this little unit. And I was just desperate for, like, lots of friends and relatives and big, loud, noisy houses. And, you know, and also I just used to look at the kids in the, you know, when we go swimming or something and the dads would be throwing up in the air. And, you know, that to me would, I I just crave that so much. And, you know, my dad actually, you know, we have a, we have a, we have a really great relationship. I mean, we had quite a distant relationship when I was a child, but it was never that kind of relationship. And so I, I wanted I wanted that. I wanted a big man, you know, like physically big. And I wanted that for my children. I wanted them to be thrown up in the air. And, you know, and if there was a burglar, there was someone who would, you know, whereas me and mum would be like, oh, my God, Bosh there's them on a the burglar. Head. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But actually, that was very limiting because it meant that I thought I couldn't do certain things. Like mm. I couldn't, I don't know, change a tire or, you know, and he was very capable in that sort of, you know, DIY sort of sense. So in a way, I just sort of let go of all that which felt really nice but then when we split I was like oh my god I don't know how to you know I don't know how to change a plug. Did your mum take on both roles did she was she the tyre changer? That's I think where it comes from so she wasn't the tyre changer she was very scared of that so she was very scared of people coming to the house to do you know to to do building work Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff so I think I lived in a, as a child in a constant state of fear. Is the boiler going to blow up? Is the, you know, is the car going to go wrong? And and I felt, I felt like we were vulnerable, I think. And right. so actually, I, I think I was trying to mitigate against the vulnerability. Hmm. But I also felt very loved. Yes. I mean, she loved me. She loves me. <laughs> but um, do you feel that's an obstacle that has become smaller over time? That's something that because you're now aware of it, you can navigate around, through, over, under when it, Rears its head. I tell you what, it, I agree. I think I can, I can navigate around it. And then when we first, when I we first split up, I felt very aggrieved that I had to do those things because mm. it was almost like this is part of the contract, you know. And so actually, I felt aggrieved and I felt painful. It felt like abandonment all over again, and it felt so upsetting that he didn't care enough to like fix the radiator or do this and you know I could sort of transfer that onto the kids how can he not fix the radiator the kids are cold and blah blah but actually it was my you know pain I think so it does feel really good to have some kind of control over that but I won't lie and I'm sure I don't know how you feel about it you know there was something amazing about marriage in sharing those problems so you know the roof's leaking it's it's a joint problem you know and now it's my problem but you know I think there were good things as well. Yeah. As someone who's single, yeah, it's when stuff like that happens when I think even if you're busy, if one is busy and yeah. one is by yourself and then something like that happens, it can tip tip you into overwhelm really quickly. I think so. I think it's really... And actually, I've got a lovely friend who that's what she 
really struggles with. And I think as women, you know, that big cold snap that we had, Mm. you know, women feel the cold more than men, don't they, physiologically. And also, I think if if you're going out there in the lashing rain trying to, I don't know, like sort your broken window out it, it feels very lonely mm. i think doesn't it but and i don't know if that's a cultural we've a culturally absorbed that we should be being looked after you know i don't know well, that's that's the conversation to yeah. unpick at another time but it is it is really interesting this idea of one the support yeah and coming from a completely different perspective from you like i said as someone who's single i haven't had it so I don't know what it's like but I eat but I still miss it yeah so it I'm must sure. be that cultural thing yeah I think it is a cultural thing and I I'm not single but my roof leaking is my problem 100% I mean you know I'm sure I could call it maybe but but you know actually he's got his own roof leaking <laughs> and so actually I think you know that's another stage on isn't it I think when mm. you when it becomes your joint problem yeah tell me about and I'm sure I know what the answer is going to be, but tell me about your biggest challenge. Uh, I think, you know, I think we've touched on it. It <laughs> was rebuilding myself. It was, you know, I think crawling out from rock bottom, which I think is just that, it's just that sort of feeling of total devastation and emptiness and loss and grief, but coupled with the sort of practicalities of like, where are we going to live? What are we going to do? how is this all going to work? And actually, you know, you talked about overwhelm earlier. I think it's a very, you get to a stage where you just can't actually, you you can't deal with stuff. So, you know, I was literally like, you know, pushing letters from the solicitors under, you know, I was just, and then the bills were coming in and, you know, he would sort, he would have sorted out the bills. So they were all kind of going over. So really it was just sort of, it was those kind of rock bottom moments of thinking, actually, I just, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how how I'm going to function, how I'm going to get the kids up today, how I'm going to get them to school, how I'm going to, you know, look like I'm together for them. That to me is the toughest thing when I've had friends who've gone through this, is that this happens, the marriage ends in a conversation, essentially. Yeah. But the kids still need picking up. Yeah. Or... The washing machine is just on the spin cycle. So, you know, you're going to have to empty the machine in a minute. And life goes on and it happens so quickly. How? how? I mean, I honestly, like, how do you empty the washing machine? How do you get in the car and go to school? Uh, I think, you know, in a way it's a, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's a sort of, it's incredibly tough, but it's also a saviour, you know. And so I think the fact that you have to keep going um, is actually a good thing. I think, you know, what, what, I found really hard was dealing with their grief and my grief. Mm. So, you know, they were they were upset and they were cross and they were distraught and they were not sleeping. And, you know, my daughter, it's very interesting how as human beings we behave. My daughter came into my bed and she, you know, she must have slept there every night for a year, you know, because she needed that physical closeness. She needed that attachment. Um so I so you know that was that was really hard dealing with their the, mm. dealing with their emotions at all. How did I do it? I, I mean I I just did an Instagram post actually that I you know I went to the doctors and they gave me a, a SSRI an antidepressant because I was I'd lost so much weight and I was so um, I was so overwhelmed I couldn't I couldn't really formulate a plan and I was just obsessed which I think the human brain does is with knowing exactly what was going on with my ex who we were seeing what he Mm -hmm. was doing where he was going and actually that wasn't helping anyone so 
after about a month, they kicked in and I and I felt stronger from that. And then I realised, you know, how much my friends and family meant to me. And, and so, you know, I just, I think I, I, you know, I just talked it out, basically. So apologies to everyone. <laughs> you talk in the book, actually, there's a moment, we've obviously had uh, lots of conversations offline. There was a moment in the book where you talked about, I hope my memory serving me well here, <laughs> driving and just like sitting outside waiting to see what you would see. And I can't remember whose house you were driving, you had parked up outside of, but you were, when you say you were obsessed with what was going on, you were doing things that Sane Rosie would never consider. Oh my God. Sane Rosie who had a modicum of dignity, <laughs> which was left. Yeah, it's funny. I think, um, you know, uh, in the book I write about, you know, how people crave they crave their ex like an addict, addict does crack, you know, with all the thing. But they also, I think, the the desire to try and understand exactly what's going on. Mm. You know, I would, I'd never done any of that, like, internet searching or, you know, um, you know, phone tracking or any of that stuff. And then I, uh, you know, then I, one sort of fateful night where he wasn't at home, I tracked it and it sort of like, you know, I can still see it now, the pin coming oh. down, premiere in. Oh, and even no. sa even saying that makes me worried because, you know, he may not have been in the premiere. He may have been, you know, I don't think they're 100% accurate, those things. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. But it's more of a, it's more of a thing of like that's that is the state that I was in, and you know I think I I do I get messages from women saying you know they've got friends to follow their exes and they've got all this sort of stuff. It makes you insane because I think you you'll do anything to recreate the status quo, and you think if I can unpick it, if I can show them that they're lying, then they'll have to stop lying. But it doesn't work like that. So actually, you you your brain just needs to get to the state where it can where it can see, well, actually, that's irrelevant, whether they're seeing them or not. What matters is yourself and what's going to happen going forward. I remember uh, Helen Thorne came on the podcast. Oh, she's brilliant. Helen Thorne is amazing. Did, and there, was, there were a lot of swearing. <laughs> there was quite a bit of swearing. <laughs> um, and you have both written about your experience of, of divorce and the fundamental difference between the two of you, because you've both done this show, is when you found out you you said I begged, I pleaded, I reasoned, I yeah. would I would change, I would have done anything yeah. to put the toothpaste back in the tube and to pretend like it never happened and carry on as we were. Yeah, making uh, relevant adjustments. Helen's reaction on discovering the affair was, oh well, that's it. 
<laughs> I yeah. won't say what she Done. actually said. Yeah. But she, so it was It was very interesting to me that they were two polar opposite reactions. One of, I'll do anything to go back to how we were. And one of, now it's just completely done. It was as if she, uh, there was a power cut. And when she came back online, she was just, oh, we are incompatible. And I'm so envious of that. I just would have loved to have been that person. And I thought that was the person that I was. So I, I, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to say I'm ashamed of it, but I just wish that I could have had that, you know, because then I think all that sort of turmoil, of course, you're going to have the other turmoils. There's going to be other, but at least you've, at least you have the power in that situation. You've said no, Mm. you know. Um, And for me, I only started to recover once I did regain, you know, power over myself. When did that happen? That happened at the at Christmas. So it'd been sort of, there'd been a sort of period, a hideous period of time where, you know, he, he had said, you know, he wasn't happy and he'd had this relationship, but he wasn't seeing this person. And, you know, we, we were going to counselling, which was just horrendous. Uh, but obviously I recommend it for people that might, there might be a way forward. Um, and so I was, that was the time where I was just thinking, is he seeing or is he not seeing? Oh, it was just horrendous. And then, and then we, we just got to Christmas and he wanted to have this kind of show Christmas with his parents, but you know, it was so volatile. And um, I mean, I think I've told you this story before. He, I said, I just can't, I can't do a show Christmas, you know, because he obviously, I think in his mind, he'd be a decent person if he stayed for Christmas for the kids and then left, you know, so I, I think that's, you know, and so I just said, I can't do that. And he said, I just think that's so selfish. And at that point I thought, oh my God, okay, this is, this is not true. Like, you know, because all the other stuff that he'd said to me, I was like, is there a bit of truth in that? And then I thought, no, you can't tell someone who you've had an affair and then you're going to leave that it's selfish for them not to throw a family Christmas. So I was like, okay, that actually doesn't, you know, that actually is a step too far. And from that moment, I, it turned for me. It sounds like it just snapped you out of it. Yeah. Were you on, not under a spell? Was there some sort of spell or fog that you were in. I think I was just so focused on the prize and I thought the prize was us getting back together and mm. and the kit you know for me still the most painful bit of all of it is is telling children the mm. children that they you know they did had no clue that that was coming. I mean they started to guess in the thing but I don't think they had any idea. So for me I was just fixated on not getting to that point of telling them and you know that was my main focus and I would, as you say, I would have done anything. Would there have been, it's something that you can't do in the moment, obviously, but I'm guessing that people who you confided in may have said, look at the bigger picture or what what life could look like this. Yeah. But it's very, very, very hard to come out of that tunnel vision, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And I remember, I think, you know, I remember my dad saying to me, you need to detach. <laughs> me thinking, right, that's, <laughs> thanks very much. I, I just remember feeling... You know, I couldn't imagine working and, and still being the kind of person that I was. I couldn't imagine ever having another relationship. And and I remember writing, I went to this um this sort of divorce retreat and you know, it was like what what is your biggest fear? And mine was I'm gonna be alone forever or I'm unlovable, you know. Mm. And um I couldn't imagine ever that somebody else would ever love me. You know, I couldn't. I just felt so unlovable. And um so I think that was my biggest fear. And yet, that's why I mentioned it in the introduction. If you had said to Rosie Green on the day everything blew up, yeah, in 2023, <laughs> X, Y, and Z will be true. Yeah. 
I don't think you could have. I don't think you would have been able to compute. I no, I couldn't. I wouldn't have done. I really wouldn't have done. I, I genuinely felt like, you know, life. I felt like life as as I knew it was over, mm. and it was just going to be this sort of slide into, you know, sadness and depression and misery and all these sort of things. And actually, the reverse is true. I mean, there's still a rawness. There's still a rawness today, but there's an. Ex- it feels exciting and it feels and obviously I've gained stability in so many areas now you know the divorce is done the house is sorted lovely boyfriend you know I've got all this stability but it still feels I feel like almost like I did in my 20s you know so I've got that sort of excitement back and passion and renaissance yeah I I sort of put part of that as well as the kids being older because I definitely was in the mummy years Mm -hmm. you know and I think you you so spread yourself out you know well, that brings us neatly on to opportunities. So we talk to guests about the opportunities that they've grabbed with both hands or perhaps missed. Yeah. And I know you love being a mother. I know you adore your kids. But when talked about the missed opportunities or not so much missed, but passed on, not necessarily that you regret them, but that there are opportunities that you passed on. You're glad about some, but you are frustrated by others. Yeah. I mean, I would say that actually probably when I think about the biggest friction point in my marriage was that, you know, when we were in our 20s, we were both work- working, we sort of earned roughly equal. I think I earned more at some stage, he earned less, he earned more, I earned less. And it wasn't until my son came along that I suddenly realised, holy shit, like this is on me. You know, I'm not saying he wasn't a good dad. Did he ever take a day off work because one of them was sick? No, you know, I mean, I have a much more flexible mm-hmm. inverted comma, but that, you know, it, it became very clear to me very quickly that I would be the primary caregiver. And, part, you know, it's so mixed up, is it? Part of me, a lot of me wants that. But equally, I want, you know, I'm I'm still frustrated now that that doesn't exist. I'm still frustrated that, you know, actually for women, it's, there's no doubt for most women, it's a pause in their career or a sort of, you know, sort of holding pattern when they're little, which I just don't think happens to men as much, mm. you know. And so, you know, there were, you know, I used to, uh, L, I would do a lot of the celebrity shoots, you know, I would, you know, we had this life, I don't know whether it still exists now, where we've been flown to like New York and LA and all these amazing places and seeing all these amazing things it was before social media but I mean my god I mean if we'd have had cameras at that point and you know I I kind of miss that life and Mm. I miss and there were opportunities like you know um the pinnacle is always vogue isn't it there's a vogue job that I'm you know that I said yeah I couldn't do you know there was like there was stuff that I that I didn't do and I'm glad that I didn't do it for my kids but I'm frustrated that even in 20 you know 2023 you can't do that you know you can't so I well you can but then you're dropping your kids off at nursery at seven and picking them up at seven and there's nothing wrong with that but that wasn't for me you know Mm. I think yeah the the gilded life of a beauty director particularly in the time when you were at the height was I mean, so glossy and so incredible. So glossy and so creatively rewarding as well. Like, you know, we would shoot, we'd do like massive shoots with kind of amazing models and photographers. And, you know, it was so, you know, I think now it's sort of like product on a page, sell it. I think they were great things. They were great fragrance writers. They were great writers. 
But I don't think I don't think it's, it's indulgent in any way, mm. shape, or form as it was. No, now it's now it's actually the creator themselves is the star that you. So yes, if you have a massive social media following, you're the shoot. Yes, not like <laughs> the last one I did was I think I got 15 minutes in a hotel room with a Victoria's Secrets model in Paris, and it was there and back in a day. Oh my and I was, god! Never felt more like Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, whereas in the old days you'd have like you know you'd have a three-day beach shoot in Antigua and and you know it would be so sumptuous and gorgeous like do you remember the, the Vogue's and the L's and the you know there were like seven or eight mm. pages of just you know it was it was fantastic so I you know I miss that yeah I miss doing that I know it was before our time but the supermodel era happened because there was so much money and time and creatives were allowed to be creative yeah because and because I think the pool the, the money pool was it was directed just at those magazines mm. there was and, you know, now there's, you know, all the different social media channels, there's the celebrity cultures and there. So that money is going to is much more spread thin, much more spreadly. No. That's it. Uh, there's that a spoonerism. Anyway. <laughs> um, how do you view opportunities now? Is it a case of your kids are older? You've been through what you've been through. You have a completely different relationship with risk. Is it are you a say yes to everything person now? Um I I am a quite say yes to everything person, but I actually think I'm going to try and try and be a bit more structured about it in 2023. <laughs> so I think I'm going to, you know, I think for so long, you know, we've been the kind of pawns, haven't we almost? So it's like, actually, you know, I'd like to write about this, but sometimes when you're given a piece to write, you're practically told what the sort of payoff is and what the, you know, yeah. and actually I think, if I've learned anything, it's, you know, you have to stand up for yourself and say, this feels right, this doesn't feel right. I actually don't want to shoot with that photographer. I do want to shoot with this photographer. You know, this is my idea. Actually, you know, the other stuff I'm bad at is, you know, we'll talk about timekeeping and things. I'll say, yes, yes, of course I can file that. Of course I can file that in five minutes time when I can't. So I'm going to realise that, that actually doesn't help anyone. <laughs> I'm going to tell the truth. But I am, um, the other thing that I think is so important is you know, now COVID's the, the other side of COVID is seeing people and getting out and meeting people and chatting to people and, you know, getting that interaction. So that is another of my things. I'm going to take all those opportunities. Agreed. I yeah. am on the same page with you there for yeah. 2023. And that actually brings us on to the next thing, which is to talk about your greatest successes. And you say it's your relationships, not yeah. just with your family, but with your friends as well. Yeah. And actually, I, you know, my friends, I... They're, they're everything to me. You know, they really are. And and, and in terms of the split, they 100% got me through that. And also, I think I was sort of siloed with my friends, like, you know, work friends, university friends. You know, actually, I realise now they're all friends, you know, and actually, I don't need to kind of compartmentalise mm. that. And it's a bit like the sort of Dolly Alderton thing. I realise how much weight society puts on romantic relationships. Mm. But the weight, you know, for me, the the female friendships are just incredible. So I feel that for me, that's my biggest success that I have these lovely friends who I hope I nurture and they certainly nurture me. Well, that's a good, a, a good word, actually. How do you nurture incredible friendships? Because I know I've had many listeners write in in the past talking about, can we talk about how you make friends as you get older? So you have a lot of friends from work and yeah. from uh, uni. And school. So have you have you got new friends that you've made more recently? Yeah, I have. And I've got um I've got friends who who 
in the past have been I've not known as much and then have kind of come into my life. You know, like actually, I think it's being open, isn't it, to someone, you know, that you know a bit has just moved into your area or it's being open to that, I think, and, and letting something develop but actually you know I was talking to the children the other day and I was saying you know I mean I don't think I'm perfect in any way at this but you know it is it's listening to someone and it's you know it's sort of giving them the appropriate amount of time to talk about themselves and what matters to them and then realizing you know sometimes they're going to go through shitty times they're not that much you know they're not going to want to go out partying and actually so you and realizing that it's an you know it's an up and down thing Mm. you know you might see lots of them because it works or your mum's at the same time and then you might not see so much of them but then life throws you back together and I'm perennially grateful for all my mates you know when I had like really young babies who I was just obviously like zero fun and they're still there you know you just think well actually let's just keep this friendship here and like yes I can't see you as much but I hope that I'm still checking in every so often and saying how are you and you know talking on the phone if you can't see them in real life and that kind of stuff. Now phone calls. Yes. My closest friends don't do phone calls. I love a phone call. Oh, I love a phone call. In fact, I had a friend, I had a lovely phone call with a friend of mine recently. And and actually, we'd had a sort of slight, you know, you do go through it. It's like weirdness. Mm. Um, And and I'd felt a bit distanced. And we had such a nice chat. But I do think as well, there's, as well, sometimes like I, I actually called her and I was in the car, so it was easy for me because it's not wasted time, you know. So there's a mm. thing, and I was very conscious of that. So sometimes I'll think, you know, actually, I probably need to be unloading the dishwasher or doing something, but somebody will call me from their car and I'll be like, no, green, you have to, you know, like buckle up for this. Yeah. So I think it's about really, you know, the give and the take. Yeah, I think we need to bring the phone call back. I think we do. Like when we were back sitting on our stairs when we were like 15. Oh my god! The, <laughs> or like getting the phone from the hallway and pulling it into the kitchen, like getting the cord under the door so that you could have a private yeah, conversation. Exactly. But I don't, and I think you know you get so much. From, I mean, I think you get more face to face, and mm. then I think a phone call isn't. It? I, I, for me, I think you get hardly anything from the. You know, how are you on the WhatsApp? I don't think you get a kind of sense really of how people are. No, you make a good point. Um, regrets. We've all had a few. Oh my god! Yeah, I have. Um, yeah, I've got. A, I have got some regrets. I've got regrets that I. I've got regrets that I didn't really look at myself and my behaviours before. You know, this this whole life event forced me to be a lot more self aware. So I think there were things that I'd done all my life that denied you know, that affected other people, but also affected me. I mean, now I write this column in You magazine, which is sort of relationships and sex. And I just, I think, you know, my mum, when I was growing up, I think was so worried that I'd be like, you know, pregnant by 15 or something that she, she was very much like, okay, you know, good girls don't, uh, sorry, mum, if you're listening, probably made this up a bit, but this is how I felt, you know, good girls don't do it. And, you know, the worst thing you could call a girl was a slut or a slag or all mm. that sort of stuff. So I think, I, you know, I internalised all those messages about sex. And, and so I think I never really examined those things. I just lived that life of, you know, thinking, well, OK, I'll put out every so often and this will be, you know. And now I think, oh, my God, I wish I'd thought about it you know and and had conversations about it that felt a bit kind of ick but you know do it Mm. so do you regret not having had more More sex yes (laughs) (laughs) 
can't look you in the eye, Rosie. Do you regret not having more sex? Yes, I do. And I, I regret not having the confidence, you know, in your, like, I, I remember I was in my early 20s and I live with like four girls in, um, not in that way, but in, in, in Wandsworth. And, you know, they were all dating, they were all working out what they wanted, what they liked, you know, not necessarily sexually, but in a partner or, mm. you know, all those kind of things. And I didn't do any of that. And I'm not... Uh, and there's only myself to look at for that. But I, I, and you know, I had a lovely time, don't get me wrong, but I I do think, oh, I wish I'd been brave enough to do that. Yeah, I think that's interesting. There is something quite brave about it. Yeah, there is, because you're going to get your heart broken or you're going to get, you're going to feel exposed or you're going to have bad sex or you're going to have good sex with someone who doesn't, doesn't want to have more sex with you. You know, like there's so much stuff, but actually it's a richness. You know, mm. you also said that you you felt like you needed to have a partner to be whole. And that was a something you've called it a regret. But is that just a truth that you wish you had understood not to be? Yeah, the truth? absolutely. I think I, I wish that I had felt whole by myself. And then I think that would have given me so much more power and strength. And, and I, you know, I'd have been able to explore more and do more. But I still... You know, I'm not unhappy with the way my life worked out. So actually that, you know, the 20 year old me needed that. Mm. So, you know. And you've interviewed so many I mean, psychologists, psychiatrists, relationship experts. You've writing the book and the work that you do. You speak to a lot of people and it's such a twee thing to say, but like you can't love anyone else until you love yourself. A hundred percent. And yet it is it does seem to be the thing that twee though it might sound it is a it is a truth it is something it is that... a truth and i think it's something but i also think it's something you've got to permanently work on you mm. know there's there's times where i think i'm great and there's times where i think i'm shit and in fact my daughter was saying to me the other day mum why do you sometimes i look in the mirror and think i look really pretty and why do i sometimes look in the mirror and think i'm really ugly and i was like unfortunately that's life you know and and i'd love for us all to be able to get out of that and i think you know, we just constantly have to work at it, don't we? You know, work at silencing that inner critic. I've been thinking about this for myself recently about how love is loving somebody despite everything. Yeah. When they're at their best and also when they're at their worst. And it's something that I think we do automatically. I'm sure you do it automatically for your children. I'm sure mm. there have been times when you thought, you buggers. Yeah. Um, but equally... It feels that's actually quite a hard thing to do for oneself. Yes, you're right. And actually to give yourself, very profound. I think that's right. Your I, think, <laughs> I think that's, um, I think you're entirely right. You do that, you know, you realise, well, I actually, you know, I love the kids when they're having a tantrum, you know, you know, you know, they're driving me mad, but I still love them mm -hmm. at their core. I might not like them in that moment for a bit. I remember my mum saying that to me. I love you, but I don't like you. Yeah, every, like, yeah. we've all heard our mum say <laughs> but that to us. I think you're right. Like if we can have that basic love for ourselves, mm -hmm. even when we've done something that we're is a bit shitty or, you know, we've realised we haven't behaved brilliantly or, you know, it's just that, just getting that real groundwork. And I think actually... It's, it's that again, it sounds really trite, but they're those small things that you do every day. You know, you nourish it, you exercise it, you give it enough sleep, you do all those things and you tell it nice things. And yeah. I, I think it's what tips us into perfectionism sometimes because you yeah. think I will be, I will get up at the same time every day, I'll go to the gym every day, I'll eat really well and you kind of set, because it's almost like, because if I do that, then I can love slash like myself. Yes, yes. And it's understanding that you can be really lazy yeah. And 
none of those things are requirements. Yeah, to your, yeah, <laughs> loving a bit of hand action. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, God, if we can unpick that for the next generation or help people, help ourselves to not be on that roller coaster, you know. Mm. Well, that's yeah. the next book. Okay. Um, speaking of your kids. Yes. I asked you what you were most proud of. And you said your children, why? I think, you know, they're so close to me. And so I see them and I observe them. And I, I mean, I could sit here and say all the really special things about, you know, like, oh, they got a, you know, tick in their maths class or whatever. But to me, it's not about that. It's the fact that they're still so open and they're still so loving. And they're these complex, funny creatures, but they have... They have so much empathy for other people. And I don't know, I feel like they've been through this sort of like really tumultuous experience. Mm. But they're caring and they're kind and they've kind of used it as an opportunity to feel more, I think. And uh, yeah, they're just, uh, I just, sorry, that's really rambling, but I just love them. They're brilliant. How old were they when everything changed? They were... um, maybe like 11 and 13. So it was really, really hard for them. Mm. It was a really hard stage. And I think it was very shocking for them because I think, you know, maybe, you know, it doesn't make it any better or worse, but kids, some kids grow up, you know, constantly thinking, oh, it's about to change or, you know, this feels rocky. I don't think they, I don't think they felt that at all. So it was a really massive shock. But they, you know, they just, I also love the fact that my daughter, she just doesn't take any crap. And I just like to be that person. I just think, yes, like, you know, she just, she, you know, she really thinks hard about, like, for instance, I just went on holiday to Abu Dhabi. And she was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that morally. And I was like, <laughs> okay, like a week in the sunshine. And she was like, yeah, no. I mean, it's amazing, right? But she can't be who she is without your influence well thank you very much I'm not, I don't know. but you know isn't that it's so interesting that she has those values and that strength and I think that's why even though we're petrified for the next generation I think they really think about that stuff mm. how has has everything that has gone on changed your relationship with them for the better do you think I certainly feel really I feel incredibly close to them and I feel very lucky actually because you know a lot of the divorces I see you know there's so much kind of pulling between the parents and there's so much um there's so much animosity that that gives them friction all mm. the time and I don't I, you know they've certainly experienced a bit of that but I hope not too much so I no I think they you know they they've coming out of it really well but that's not to say there isn't pain there is pain but as I say to my daughter, well, you know, it's your singing career. At least you've, you know, experienced the lows. <laughs> um, please shout out at the Brits when you win one. Exactly. Um, I think I know what it's going to be, but I'm always interested to learn from people what their um, the greatest curveball that they've had to contend with is. And I, I know that we've discussed it, but we have. I mean, I think there's, you know, there have been other ones, um, and there have actually that, you know, there. I think in everyone's life there have been you know, sudden deaths or horrible deaths or, you know, kind of accidents or things from the blue. This was definitely the one that destabilised me the most. But what, you know, what I've learned is that, you know, these things come at you, don't they? You know, and actually you can go quite a long time in your life without experiencing them. But they do, they do make you, they do make you more aware. They do make you see yourself more. They do make you more empathetic and compassionate. 
you know, so I wouldn't, would I change some of them? Yes. But I think, you know, the import, I heard, heard this brilliant thing is like, if something bad happens, do you, do you, do you survive or do you thrive? Or, you know, do you go into victim mode? Which I think the first thing is you go into victim mode, then you survive. And then if you can use it to thrive, that's the most incredible thing to grow. You know? mm, yeah, taking, yeah, the bad stuff is part of it. Yeah. It's just how you how you can not leverage it in a mercenary way, but how you can yeah grow from it. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's not to make anyone who's like, you know, crying into their peanut butter ice cream feeling utterly shit. So, you know, it takes time. That's the other thing I read the other day that, you know, actually you can't like you can't fast forward through heartbreak. You can you can do it better, I think, or you can learn or you can not take the same mistakes as you. But you actually it's a physical process. Mm, like That's what uh, really like came a, out of the book. Yeah. Like a kind of broken arm. Yeah. You know, it takes time. And you can't rush it. Yeah. What would you say is a weakness that you work on? Apart from the terrible timekeeping. <laughs> um, I you. think, you know, poor me. And I also think that I, like, if I feel shit, you know, like for whatever reason, I'm tired or I'm ill or I've said something stupid, then I translate that to how I look. And I'd like to stop that. So I'd like to, so, you know, I just think, okay, well, I don't know. Like, I feel like if I say, you know, if I'm feeling low, I'll I'll project that onto like oh I must look shit or I must be feeling fat or I must be feeling this or I must be, and that's probably a magazine thing it's a society thing it's a mm. and I just want to stop that I don't know how so that's my that's my that's my 2023 plan that's really interesting whenever I feel like my um, mental health is I don't know or if I wake up and it's like mm, something's a bit off yeah I will follow a makeup tutorial yeah isn't that interesting and it evaporates. Because then Not every you, time. it gives you the power to like change who you are superficially, maybe. But also, I think it's because, you know, even giving our, you know, both of us love beauty mm-hmm. and I'm drawn to beautiful things, be they boots or jewellery or people. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's so weird how that's intertwined with that. Isn't that is so interesting, isn't it? It's it's just I think for me, I think it's about dissociating. OK, and looking in the mirror and doing my makeup is is reconnecting. Okay, and so I think I've only just pieced that together. I think when <laughs> I like my moment, <laughs> that's going to be a gift. Um, I yeah, when I think when I can spiral, what is actually happening is like a disconnection happening. Okay, and pulling it back by looking in the mirror and um, accentuating who what I look like emphasizing my eyes or my lips whatever it might be is is a form of connecting that's interesting and is there any part of you that's almost like you know you kind of make yourself you make yourself look better so then you make yourself feel better do you think it just comes it just it's a gradual process that happens during I think and sometimes I will put my I will if I've had a sort of crappy day like I wasn't feeling very well recently and I showered at like six o'clock in the evening Mm. and at this time of year it's pitch black but I still did my hair and did a full face of makeup because I knew that if I didn't and I just did my skincare and sort of got into my comfies. Yeah. That that would that wouldn't be a bad be good day. For your, that mm. would be good for your brain. Yeah. Yeah. I have the weird thing where I sort of think if I've had a really bad day and I just feel shit, oh, you know, then I will then I'll sometimes like look in the mirror and actually think, I'll actually be like, oh, you actually look all right. Because <laughs> I'll have a I'll have just an idea of what I'll look like yeah. almost. You know, 
Um, yeah, I mean, God, I mean, that's a whole nother it's a, it's a, I think it's a dissociation. It's like there's almost like this internal voice that's sort of yeah. beating you up. Yes. Instead of loving yeah. you. Yeah. And then you see it with your eyes and you're like, oh. Why but I can't it? imagine men link it to their looks so much. I mean, maybe a bit more now. Really? I don't know. We, well, again, let's put a note. That's a feature. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> um, right. Let's talk about your greatest strength. And I agree with you on this one because you've said it's your writing. Yeah, I, you know what, I feel, I don't know whether it's a strength or a gift, ah. but I, I, so I, I just, I feel very lucky that I found an outlet for the thing that I think I can do, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, so many people have got something they're really good at, you know, but they don't ever get to do it. And, you know, I kind of, this is what I say to my kids, you know, I, I was good at English, but I was shit at those like comprehension things, you know, where it's like, say thing, three things from the passage that worked out. So, I mean, I. You know, it wasn't like anyone was going, oh, my God, we've got the next Shakespeare in this class. Let's do that. <laughs> but I had the internal strength or the internal knowledge that in in a certain medium, my writing would be able to touch people and make mm-hmm. people feel a certain way and make me feel a certain way. So for me to chase that dream and, you know, you know how hard it is to to get to the point where people are paying you to write. I mean, it's quite it's a, it's a long slog, isn't mm-hmm. it? But I, I think I feel lucky to have the gift to be able to write and then to have slogged it out until I got to the point where people were interested and I got a certain name for myself so that I could do that as my living. Yeah. And I think you only have to look at the Amazon reviews for the book. Oh, people are basically, this book saved me. This book was everything that I needed. I ordered it within hours of my marriage falling apart. And that that makes, I mean, that's incredible as part of this whole sort of journey to, I mean, again, it sounds like a cliche, but to feel that you've helped people through that. And and and, and they're being, you know, they don't have to write that, do they? Maybe they do. Um, but it's just, it's it feels hundreds, so Rosie. genuine. It feels so genuine. And I think, you know, right back to the beginning of the conversation when we talked about the risk, mm. you know, I felt a massive risk of being so open, but I thought I can't help people if I'm not honest about how shit it was and, um, you know, how, you know, and then I think anybody in that situation thinks, well, you know, it happened to her and she's, you know, it's basic human. It happened to her and she's okay now, you know, and it happened to her and she looks like on the face of it, a fairly decent person. So, you know, maybe that means it's all BS what he's telling me that I'm a terrible person, you know, so. Speaking of honesty. Yes. Tell me about a time when you were wrong. (gasps) Oh, my God. What did I say? I mean, I'm so wrong. I loved this. You said one of the greatest gifts my marriage breakdown gave me was realizing people all view the world differently. I didn't understand that before. I thought that was absolutely Yeah, I remember going to the therapist and her saying, you know, well, your worldview and your, I mean, like we're so therapized now, we know this, your worldview and your worldview are totally different. And I was like, yeah, but my worldview is the right worldview. (laughs) (laughs) Just FYI. Um, and it made me think, you know, he he said in, I remember him saying, I mean, it's so random to remember this, but I remember him saying, yeah, you know, you want to go on holiday. And I was like, yeah, normal people want to go on holiday. So like, I don't, I don't care if I go on holiday. I don't really, I, I don't really want to waste the money going on holiday. And I was like, what? Like, everyone wants to go on holiday. He genuinely didn't want to go on holiday. Like, he'd be happy in the house. He'd be happy not doing that. And, and I, I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, he's entitled to that view. Mm. But it took, 
you know, I'd never if if this if the marriage had never blown up, I would have just always gone through life thinking, well, everyone has a holiday, and of course you are mad not wanting to go on holiday. Mm. It's interesting. It's a big shift, isn't it, when you realise, oh, that they might not see it the way I see yeah. it. Yeah, and actually, just listening to you there talking about the the makeup, I can totally see what you're saying, but I I don't think that's why I feel the way I do. But but now I'm just interested in your viewpoint, and then. I do it for the reason that I do it. But, you know, I feel like I'm more of a listener now in that sense. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Now, um, to close off our conversation, tell me about something in the world, in your life that makes you hopeful. Well, I just talked about my daughter. I think, the ch- I think you know, kids make me hopeful. They really do. Because I think, you know, we can get so bogged down in thinking, you know, all these terrible things are happening, you know, hideous wars and, you know, people struggling on strikes and all these this but actually in terms of our you know how we talk to each other how you know the opportunities that people have you know I look at the sort of poor women in Iran I think of the you know how much we've moved on in terms of our you know our kind of culture I mean yeah of course there's loads of places to go but so much is being called out now so Mm. I think you know I have massive hope that this generation will keep it moving. And I have hope that our generation, who I think have spoken about all those things that are really hard, you know, like miscarriages, like menopause, like sexism, you know, all those things. I think we, I hope that going forward, we'll sort of, you know, we'll change up old age. You know, we're already changing up menopause, aren't we? We'll change all those things. And so actually, you know, women won't be as marginalised and you know, culture will be open and more positive. Amazing. Rosie, it's always the best (laughs) chatting to you. And thank you so much for sharing. And obviously, listeners, if you want to grab a copy of Rosie's book. Oh, your clue. Only if your heart's broken. Oh, well, maybe not. Actually, it teaches you other stuff, doesn't it? It teaches you other stuff. But I also think that if you are, like for me reading it, I have a huge amount of resources, emotional resources now. If a friend rings me up and says, you're never going to believe what's happened. Yeah. I have so much from that book where I can say, okay, well, also I'll give me your phone number. <laughs> yeah, give <laughs> my phone number, exactly. But I I won't I won't offer platitudes. Yeah. Because I have a completely different perspective of what it's like to go through it. And so I think I can be way more helpful. Yeah. Mm, thank you. Yes. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you. As a journalist, I'm literally itching here to ask you all the questions. But I know I'm like bum clenching to ask you all the questions, but I know that's not what this is about. <laughs> thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show and why not tell a friend about the podcast if you want to watch what happens behind the scenes then head over to my instagram where i'm at emma guns and if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks obstacles challenges or curveballs that you've faced and overcome then tell me on the beauty podcast at gmail.com and it may feature in one of the midweek shows Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.